We think that understanding Fourier theory is critical to understanding the mathematics of waves, and that's one reason that this is the largest section in the entire book. To do justice to the many important concepts in Fourier theory, we've divided the commentary for this section into two parts. This first commentary will deal with the first part of this section, that is, the part dealing with Fourier synthesis. And another commentary will cover the second portion of the section, which deals with Fourier analysis. As it says in the opening paragraph of this section, the subject of Fourier synthesis is about the creation of a waveform by combining just the right amounts of sine and cosine functions which have just the right frequencies. If you read section 2.3, you saw a bit of this process in the discussion of superposition, but in this section, we're combining waves in a much more sophisticated and useful way. You can see an example of the first step of this process in figure 3.9. In the A portion of that figure, we've drawn a square wave function x of x with spatial period of 2L. The goal of this exercise in Fourier synthesis is to synthesize this waveform using sines and cosines as our basis functions. As it says in the text, at first blush, it may seem impossible to use smoothly curving functions like sines and cosines to produce this blocky waveform with its straight lines and sharp corners. But like most worthwhile tasks in science and engineering, you shouldn't give up on this before you at least give it a try. So we start with the sine wave shown in figure 3.9b. As you can see, its spatial frequency matches that of the square wave quite nicely. You can tell this by looking at the zero crossings, which occur at L and 2L and 3L and so on. You may notice that the amplitude of this fundamental sine wave is a bit bigger than the amplitude of the square wave, but you'll see why that's a good idea in a few minutes. Now look at figure 3.10. In the A portion of that figure, we've shown another sine wave, this one with three times smaller amplitude and three times higher frequency. Adding this frequency component to the original sine wave that we call the fundamental gives the waveform shown in figure 310b. Notice that some good things have happened by adding in this second sine wave. And by good, we mean that this combined waveform looks a bit more like the square wave that we're trying to synthesize. If you look carefully, you can see that the second sine wave has a negative value just at the locations of the positive peaks of the original sine wave. So when you combine these two sine waves, the combined waveform doesn't overshoot the square wave by as much. Another benefit that the second sine wave brings is that it does a little squaring up of the fundamental sine wave exactly where it needs it. Now look at figure 311. In the A part of this figure, we show a third sine wave. This one has five times smaller amplitude and five times higher frequency than the fundamental. Adding in this third sine wave, as you can see in the B part of figure 311, makes the combined wave resemble the square wave even more closely. By now you're probably getting the idea. Adding in more and more sine waves with carefully selected smaller amplitudes and higher frequencies makes the combined wave converge on the desired square wave. That is, the combined wave gets closer and closer to the square wave as you add in more terms. Figure 312a and b show the combined wave with 16 and 64 terms in this same series, and as you can see, the synthesized waveform is now getting very close to the original square wave. You may notice a little overshoot just at the corners. You can read about this in the text, it's called Gibbs Ripple, and although you can never get rid of this effect, you can reduce its horizontal extent by adding in more terms. A convenient way to show the spatial frequencies that make up the square wave is to use a frequency spectrum like that we've shown in figure 313. Notice that in a frequency spectrum, the height of the bar shows the amplitude of the frequency component, and the horizontal position of the bar shows the spatial frequency or wave number of the component. 
So to make up a square wave, you add in frequency components with amplitudes that are one-third, one-fifth, one-seventh, and so on of the fundamental amplitude, and have wave numbers that are three times, five times, seven times, and so on, the wave number of the fundamental. Before showing some other examples of Fourier synthesis, we wanted to introduce the concept of the two-sided frequency spectrum, which you can see in figure 314. In the A part of this figure, we show the spectrum of a cosine wave, and in the B portion, the spectrum of a sine wave. Why are there two bars in each spectrum? To answer that, think back to the discussion of the inverse Euler relations in section 1.7. Remember that sines and cosines can each be represented by two counter-rotating phasers. Well, the two-sided spectrum shows you both of those phasers, one with positive frequency, that is rotating anti-clockwise in the complex plane, and one with negative frequency, that is rotating clockwise in the complex plane. And exactly as described in chapter 1, the counter-rotating phasors have the same sign for a cosine function, and they have opposite signs for a sine function. So, Fourier synthesis involves the algebraic summation of sine and cosine functions of various amplitudes and various frequencies, and the graphical representation of the synthesized waveform is shown as a frequency spectrum. As it says in the text, you can Fourier synthesize spatial functions, such as x of x, as shown in equation 3.25, or time functions, such as t of t, as shown in equation 3.26. Notice that the cosine coefficients are generally called a sub n, and the sine coefficients are called b sub n. Notice also that there's a non-oscillating, or dc term, which is called a zero. We need that term to account for waveforms that are vertically offset, so their average value is not zero, as it is for pure sine and cosine waves. At this point, you may be wondering, how important are the exact values of the a sub n and b sub n coefficients in Fourier synthesis? In other words, if you vary a sub n or b sub n a little, does that impact the synthesized waveform very much? The answer to that question depends on what you mean by a little variation, but you can see some examples of this in figures 315 and 316. In figure 315, we made the coefficients decrease as 1 over n squared instead of 1 over n, and we've also made every second coefficient negative. Doing that changes the synthesized waveform into a triangle wave rather than a square wave. And in figure 316, you can see what happens if we sum cosine waves rather than sine waves. So in this case, the b sub n are 0 and the a sub n are non-zero. We also added in a dc term, that is a 0 of 1 half, and we made the a sub n coefficients negative and decreasing as 1 over n squared. What that gives us, as you can see in figure 316, is an offset triangle wave. So can you synthesize any waveform from appropriately weighted sine and cosine functions? The answer is yes, as long as the function you're trying to synthesize is reasonably well-behaved. And by well-behaved, we mean that it doesn't have an infinite number of maxima or minima or discontinuities in any given interval. That means that most functions you're likely to encounter in physics and engineering are almost certainly going to be amenable to Fourier synthesis. And if you've got a waveform and you want to know what the frequency components are that are present in that waveform, you can find the answer using Fourier analysis. That's the subject of the remainder of this section, and we'll cover that in the next commentary.